From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and Sandberg Media, LLC, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. We have an obligation, and, and here the obligation, I think, is shared by citizens who are educated and who consider themselves to be intellectual and well-read. Right? We have an obligation to, to be hopeful, no matter how grim the political and social scene gets in this country. Things Not Seen is made possible in part through the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash notseenradio. Thank you. Welcome to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Jacob L. Goodson. He's Associate Professor of Philosophy at Southwestern College in Winfield, Kansas. We've had him on the show before, most recently with his co-author Brad Elliott Stone, talking about the book Introducing Prophetic Pragmatism. Today we're talking about his recent book, The Dark Years, Philosophy, Politics, and the Problem of Predictions. Jacob Goodson, welcome to Things Not Seen. Great to be back, David. Thank you for having me on. So this book is a powerhouse, and I want right out of the gate to commend it to readers. If you're interested in understanding why academic philosophy has failed to be relevant in the last 75 years, I think that this book, The Dark Years, gives us some strong indications in its basic thesis about why that's the case. But in order to back up a broad and very strong statement like that, we need to put some pieces in place. And so I want to start by asking you, this book, The Dark Years, is focused primarily on a set of predictions made by an American pragmatist philosopher by the name of Richard Rorty, and that is probably where we should begin. Who was Richard Rorty? Yes, thank you, David. Well, Richard Rorty was an American philosopher, as you said, specializing in pragmatism and romanticism. He was considered a bit of a rebel within academic philosophy. In the 70s, he published a groundbreaking book called Philosophy in the Mirror of Nature that called into question the whole method of what we call analytic philosophy. Uh, analytic philosophy simply says that philosophy should focus on the meaning and sense of language and that philosophy should provide a foundation for natural sciences. In that book, Wardy doesn't offer a political critique of analytic philosophy but he does use the methods of analytic philosophy against analytic philosophy and calls into question the limitations and the faulty assumptions of analytic philosophy. Um, after that book, he was considered so rebellious that his next job opportunity was not even in philosophy, but the University of Virginia offered him a position in comparative literature. And he took that as a welcomed escape from the problems of, of academic philosophy. He then moved to Stanford and spent the rest of his career teaching comparative literature, also at Stanford. Uh, and then he, he passed away in 2007. 
Well, maybe we should linger for a moment here on this question of analytic philosophy, because this is something that you raise early on in your book, The Dark Years. You talk about why analytic philosophy became a primary American project in the academy. And it was a response, you argue, in many ways to the rise of McCarthyism and the kind of the kind of anti-communist purgings that happened across American society in the 1950s and 1960s. I'd love to hear a little bit more about that. Yes, that's correct. And I, I did not know this going into the book. This was something that, as many authors experience, that I learned of while doing the research for this particular book. So it turns out that, although not Senator McCarthy himself, but McCarthy's followers, went into the academy and started what some historians consider a purge of any professor that suggested, for instance, that capitalism was to blame for the Great Depression. Any professor that was doing research into Karl Marx, uh, either historical or philosophical research, any professor, for instance, that tried to connect the dots between the failures of American democracy and the connections to capitalism. And what happened in philosophy in particular was that philosophers got so scared, according to my research, that over about a a 10-year period, analytic philosophy became not only the dominant, but the only type of philosophy practiced within the states, especially at Ivy Leagues and state research universities. And what we mean by analytic philosophy, again, is, is again, that philosophy is only a method for analyzing language, and that the main task of philosophy is to provide foundations and warrants for the natural sciences. What this meant was that philosophers no longer talked about or wrote about ethics or political philosophy. And I know that sounds extreme, but there is a a gap in the publication record that I found where there is hardly anything published by an academic philosopher on ethics or political philosophy during this time of, of academic McCarthyism. Let me see if I'm following this correctly. So one of the things that Marx is famous or maybe infamous for is a little sentence called the 11th Thesis on Feuerbach that says that philosophers thus far have only interpreted the world and the purpose is to change it. And what I'm hearing you saying is that the analytic philosophers turned away from that because it was connected to Marx and they said, our purpose is not to change the world. Our purpose is to help science and language do their job better. Now, first of all, am I hearing that turn correctly or have I misunderstood something? No, you have it exactly correct. And I I had not, in my own mind, made the connection back to Marx. That's a very witty way to put what exactly happened in, in academic philosophy. And so when we're seeing this happen in analytic philosophy and this turning away, what was the practical effect? So were philosoph- you say philosophers no longer talked about politics and philosophers no longer talked about ethics. Does that mean that academic philosophy, when you said that you saw a gap in the literature, remind me again, the, the length of time that we're talking about is from when to when that this basically silence about politics and ethics became evident in American philosophy? Yeah, we're talking primarily, we see the full results in the late 50s and then goes to basically the publication of John Rawls's theory of justice in the in the mid 70s and Rawls is considered to be the one that brings politics or political philosophy back and makes it okay to do it again the best answer to your question is to focus on this one philosopher named Stanley Moore whose career I just became so fascinated by and 
it depicts exactly what kind of moves were made within academic philosophy for those who were trying to do ethics and political philosophy. So Stanley Moore did his dissertation on Karl Marx. He was particularly interested in the ways in which Soviet communism misrepresented and failed to practice Marx's philosophy. So he was very critical of Soviet communism, was not a communist sympathizer in any way. And he, he would get job offers. And then once the board of trustees would find out what his research was, the job offers would be removed or, or withdrawn. He finally landed a job in the state of Washington at a small liberal arts college. And after teaching there for a few years, the board of trustees refused to let him go up for tenure, again, because of his research on Marx. And I, I want to reiterate that he was a strong critic of Soviet communism. He, he felt like his job as an academic philosopher was to continually show how Soviet communism was, in fact, unfaithful, was not representative of Marx's vision. But this task that he decided to take on himself kept him from holding jobs or, or even getting jobs. And so th those are the kind of moves that were made. Board of trustees uh, throughout the country who felt threatened by scholars who were Hegel or Marx scholars, they did not want them as part of their universities. Let me take a moment and make sure that listeners know who you are. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and today we're welcoming back our guest, Jacob L. Goodson. We're talking about his recent book, The Dark Years, Philosophy, Politics, and the Problem of Predictions. So you've been laying out the landscape for us that in the 1950s and 60s, American philosophy basically turned its back on what some would call the continental tradition, the Hegelian Marxian critiques of the economy and political philosophy, and simply began to focus on language and being a foundational basis for the sciences. And so that brings us back to Richard Rorty, because you said John Rawls in the 1970s began to reawaken this ethical conversation and the, the notion that philosophy should speak to politics. But then you say that Richard Rorty came along and offered his own critique of this kind of analytic philosophy. Walk us through briefly how Richard Rorty's critique differed from Rawls's reawakening of these central questions in philosophy. Yeah, it's a similar trajectory. I appreciate you connecting the two. Rawls, in some way, simply reasserted what political philosophy looks like without questioning the methods and tools of analytic philosophy. Rawls was already at Harvard and so had some capital and had avoided the uh, depolitization of, of academic philosophy. And so Rawls, in the style of analytic philosophy, in terms of the way that he argued, he then published Theory of Justice, which is his, his classic work now, which then brought political philosophy back into academic philosophical debates and discussions. Whereas Richard Rorty, at about the same time as Rawls's publication, he wrote Philosophy in the Mirror of Nature as a way to critique the methods and tools of analytic philosophy. Again, in, in Mirror of Nature, he doesn't say we need to go back to ethics or political philosophy. He's simply showing with sometimes painful detail <laughs> the exact problems and limitations of what analytic philosophy had become, particularly in the United States, but also in Britain. And the heart of those problems for Rorty is that analytic philosophy 
made this assumption in, in philosophy, we would call this something like the fallacy of begging the question. But analytic philosophy had made the assumption that the concepts in our head were simply mirrors or representations of the outer world. And that philosophers, the way that they analyzed language and the way that they did logic and the way that they provided foundations for natural sciences, that they made that assumption that there was a disconnect between the human mind and reality rather than trying to prove that dualism or prove that distinction. And so Wardy used the tools of analytic philosophy to say that one of the primary assumptions of analytic philosophy is, is problematic. And Wardy is known for making this move at the end of philosophy in the mirror of nature that it's not that our, our concepts or our minds are separated from the world. It's that through the act of interpretation, human beings negotiate life within the world and it doesn't separate us from the world. It doesn't separate our, our brains or our minds or our concepts from the world. But in fact, what we have to uh, assume is that we are part of the world. We are members of the world. It's through the word interpretation. It's through acts of interpretation that we, that we negotiate our ways throughout the world. Now, keeping in mind what you said earlier in the brief biography of Richard Rorty, that he eventually stopped teaching in philosophy departments and began teaching in comparative literature departments. How was this critique of analytic philosophy received in American philosophical circles? It was quite controversial. There, um, it's the only time that I have seen, I'm sure there's been other times in, in America, but in my research, it's the only times in which I've seen the actual phrase emergency conference. So some of these emergency conferences popped up in 1979, 1980, 1981, after the publication of Wardy's Philosophy of the Mirror and Nature. And by emergency conference, they meant we need to come together as academic philosophers and prove Wardy's thesis wrong, prove that what we do is still okay and is still the right way to do philosophy and that we are not committing uh, particular fallacies and that we are not making a faulty assumption. And so there was about a three-year period where you had these unplanned conferences coming together as a way to defend themselves against Wardy's accusations and philosophy of the mirror of nature. Wardy was at Princeton at the time of this publication, and he reports that he remained good friends with many of the people in his department, but that he also started to feel alienated within the department after the publication of philosophy in the mirror of nature. Well, can we say now, some decades later, who won in that exchange? So I would say that for most academics, the fact that the entire guild was responding promptly to a thesis that had been put forward would be a home run, a knockout of the park. But it sounds as if maybe that wasn't a good turn for Rorty. And so my, my basic question as we're coming to the end of this segment is, who came out on top in those discussions and debates? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I think that, I think Wardy did come out on top in the sense that he became the most prominent American philosopher in the 80s, and particularly in his relationships with European philosophers such as Jürgen Habermas. He, he also started to become known outside of America as well. I think what happened was that the primary PhD programs in the United States buckled down on analytic philosophy. So the programs I'm referring to are University of Michigan, University of Arizona, some of the Ivy Leagues, not all of them, but some of them, 
that they they dug their heels in and i would say they're still digging their heels in on defending the primacy of analytic philosophy as the best way perhaps the only way to actually do philosophy correctly or properly but analytic philosophers who stick to language analysis and symbolic logic they aren't really known and they don't have an impact on citizens in in the world and so in that sense even though wardy felt alienated i think his work provides more edification for more people and if you're wanting to use the language of winning and losing i would think in that sense wardy definitely won if you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're welcoming back today our frequent guest, Jacob L. Goodson. He's Associate Professor of Philosophy at Southwestern College in Winfield, Kansas. And today we're talking about his recent book, The Dark Years, Philosophy, Politics, and the Problem of Predictions. We'll be back in a moment. Each week here at Things Not Seen, we dive deep into the tough questions about culture and faith. Questions are a sign of growth, and it's way easier to hear the answers when others join in the asking. That's why I'm excited for our sponsor, BeADisciple.com. It's the social hub for all your spiritual quandaries. One click away at BeADisciple.com. Scroll through their affordable, ecumenical, accredited, short-term online courses, all taught by content experts. Here you'll be in the company of others where it's safe to discuss hard questions. If you have questions and are looking to grow, enroll in a course today and ask away at BeADisciple.com. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. If you're enjoying our conversations, let me invite you to go to our website, thingsnotseenradio.com, where we have close to 10 years of these kinds of conversations, all for free and available for your listening pleasure. Today we're speaking with Jacob L. Goodson. He's Associate Professor of Philosophy at Southwestern College in Winfield, Kansas. Most recently we had him on, along with his co-author Brad Elliott Stone, to talk about the book Introducing Prophetic Pragmatism. Today we're talking about his recent book, The Dark Years, Philosophy, Politics, and the Problem of Predictions. Well, in the first segment, we started to establish who Richard Rorty was and the impact that he had on American philosophy, particularly in the decade of the 1980s. But now I want to turn to the main point of concern for your book, The Dark Years, and that is that late in his career, Richard Rorty made a series of predictions about the future of the American political project and the American cultural project. And those predictions were, in some ways, frighteningly accurate and in other ways failed to hit the mark. Why don't you begin by just telling us at a kind of 30,000 foot level, what were these predictions that Richard Rorty was making late in his career? Yeah, in 1997, in a book called Achieving Our Country, Rorty is talking about the failures of the left in the late 20th century. And he transitions from these critiques of the left to all of a sudden talking about the presidential election of 2016. So this is in 1997. He starts talking about the election of 2016. 
And he, he says that part of this election is going to see the return of misogyny and sexism as being okay ways to talk for politicians that we would see a candidate who is very anti-immigration, that we would see the rise of racist rhetoric, and that the candidate who used this language, the language of sexism, racism, and xenophobia, that this candidate would win the 2016 presidential election. Now, Rorty does not name Donald Trump, but he does say that we will elect a strong man because the working poor and the unemployed will be tired of being left behind by the Democratic Party and will elect the strong man that the Republicans put up for president in 2016. Now, that's a frighteningly accurate prediction. What was he basing this on? Was he just picking 20 years as a kind of arbitrary number from 1996, basically, to 2016? Or was there some analysis that he provided that actually gave him a concreteness to that particular year as the date that this would be happening? If we stick with achieving our country, the answer is that it seems arbitrary. He doesn't state that it's simply um, or that there's reason for why 2016. So it does seem like it's just a sort of 20 year mark from when he's thinking and writing. If we take another piece though, which he published in 1998 called Looking Backwards from 2096, a strange title. In that piece, he does give us the analysis of why he's chosen what he calls the dark years from 2014 to 2044. And so in 2014, according to Wardy, we will start to grow tired of the promises of political elites, particularly for helping the poor and for solving the immigration crisis and for addressing lingering racism in this country, that we will grow tired of that and that we will enter into a time of darkness, this darkness being based upon the role of the strong man that he refers to in, in achieving our country. And so in one essay or in, in one book, achieving our country, he doesn't give us the reasons for why he chose our current time period. But in the essay, looking backwards from the year 2096, he does give supply us with more of those reasons. Now, let me see if I'm following this correctly. In the first segment, we talked about how analytic philosophy turned its back on political and ethical questions. In, in many ways, academic philosophy in America literally turned its back on the poor because this was a question that the, the kind of more Marxist and Hegelian philosophical practices were focused on, the, the sort of notion of economics and economic inequality. So academic liberalism, the academy, academic philosophy turns its back on the questions of the poor and the plight of the poor. And Rorty is now looking at, in many ways, the political consequences of turning, of that back turning, the political consequences of abandoning the care of the poor as a central question. Now, when I lay it out like that, am I following properly what is going on with Rorty? He is literally trying to bring the political consequences back into the conversation, or would you state it in a different way? No, I think you have it exactly right. I think what Rorty would say is that not only did academic philosophy neglect politics and ethics, but the academy as a whole neglected the politics of poverty in this country and that 
over time, that neglect would turn the working poor and the unemployed into a kind of anti-education mindset that would then look for a strong man who had their back. And this one of the features of the strong man would be that he too, in his rhetoric, was anti-education and anti-intellectual. Now, you used a phrase just a moment ago, the politics of poverty, and I want to linger there for a second. If we were to line out in sort of broad strokes what we mean by this phrase, the politics of poverty, help, help me and my listeners understand what that means. Yeah, great question. For me, when we talk about what the scholarly vocation involves, I think that one thing that academics need to be better at is to think and speak honestly about the systems and structures that create and maintain poverty in this country. And one of the results of academic McCarthyism was precisely to not only neglect that scholarly vocation, but to say that you would lose your job if you exercise that scholarly vocation. That that turns you into some kind of secret or perhaps even public Marxist even if you had never read Marx, but you were simply aware of the impact of capitalism and how capitalism may have led to something like the Great Depression in this country. And so the whole academy, according to Wardy, simply chose to neglect the poor. And he doesn't offer a particular reason for that neglect. That's why I had to go do the research to find out what was the cause of this neglect. And the cause of the neglect, I, I came uh, with almost certainty, I came to conclude was this academic McCarthyism, that it was professors being scared of losing their jobs. It was the board of trustees making particular hires and power moves. And the result of that was that the politics of poverty was no longer allowed to be discussed or taught in the university from the 1950s onward. You make a claim in your book, The Dark Years, that I think really highlights this point, that even if a person was not explicitly studying or working with Marx and Marxist ideas, if they even raised the question or the issue that capitalism was somehow failing the poor, they were painted with this broad brush. Now, am I remembering that correctly from your book? That's exactly right. I mean, when I did my research outside of philosophy departments, I found economists, historians, political scientists who never mentioned Marx in anything that I could find, that simply were trying to teach or lecture on the potential causes of the Great Depression. And once they went into that territory in the classroom or in a publication, they were no longer part of that university. And so, yeah, it had nothing to do with whether or not you read or admired Marx. It had to do with any sense that you were to blame poverty or the Great Depression or any other American problem on the impact and effects of capitalism. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and we're speaking today with Jacob L. Goodson. He's Associate Professor of Philosophy at Southwestern College in Winfield, Kansas. We've had him on the show before, most recently discussing his co-authored book with Brad Elliott Stone, The Promise of Prophetic Pragmatism. Today we're talking about his recent book, The Dark Years, Philosophy, Politics, and the Problem of Predictions, which deals primarily with a set of predictions made by Richard Rorty, the American philosopher, in the late 1990s that turned out to be shockingly true. 
So let's linger for a moment on these predictions. So Richard Rorty, in his book, Achieving Our Country, and then in this, in this, uh, this short piece, Looking Backwards from 2096, he makes these predictions. And one of the predictions in particular is that in 2016, America would elect a strong man who rises to power on an anti-immigrant and very racist kind of platform. When these predictions were published, how were they received there in the late 1990s? Um, the book reviews I read, David, did not mention the predictions. The book reviews at the time focused on his critiques of, of the left. And he concludes the book with his own vision of the left. And so that's what many of the initial interlocutors chose to uh, engage with, was, was Wardy's critiques of the left and then his own vision for the left. There, there is maybe a one sentence mention that he predicted politics in the 20th century, in the 21st century, but there wasn't much engagement. It really, to be honest, it wasn't until November of 2016 where this particular passage from Morty's Achieving Our Country became famous. And it, it, in fact, went viral on November 9th, 2016, the day after the presidential election. And the paragraph that was tweeted the most from that book reads like this. Wardy writes, quote, at that point, something will crack. The non-suburban electorate will decide that the system failed and start looking around for a strong man to vote for. Someone willing to assure them that once he is elected, the smug bureaucracy, the tricky lawyers, the overpaid bond salesmen, and postmodernist professors will no longer be calling the shots, end quote. So that particular paragraph uh, went viral on November 9, 2016. And that's really when scholars and journalists started talking about the predictions found in Wardy's Achieving Our Country. And this was what was fascinating to me, because towards the end of your book, The Dark Years, you talk about the major publications, the, the news publications that pick this up and begin to write think pieces on this particular passage. If you could, for the sake of my listeners, walk us through some of the publications that were discussing I, I can't think of another time when when I can recall major publications, popular publications, picking up a 20 year old paragraph from from a philosopher and dealing with it with the kind of uh, depth and concern that they were dealing with it. What were some of the publications that were writing about this? Yeah, there were several. And in fact, for the uh, for the book, I had to really limit what I talked about. So I, I selected three that were the most interesting. The first one that was, and I'm, I'm going to give these in chronological order of publication, but they all came out in November 2016. The first one's from Jennifer Senior, who's, a, a, in my mind, a reliable journalist. And she wrote for the New York Times that an American philosopher back in the 90s predicted Trump's election. She states, quote, Donald J. Trump enthusiasts might dispute the word strongman, but the essence of Wardy's argument holds up surprisingly well, end quote. And so Jennifer Senior for the New York Times says that Wardy completely nailed his prediction. And then in Cosmopolitan, a journalist named Megan Friedman begins her column with this attention grabber, quote, were you shocked when Donald Trump won the presidential election? If you had read this book, Achieving Our Country, you would not have been shocked, end quote. And so she has a whole column on connecting Wardy's prediction with what she calls Trump being in the international super rich, 
and that Trump's place in the international super rich is what, in fact, makes him Wardy's strongman. And then third, Andy Sill, who, who I couldn't find much about as an author or journalist, he actually is a naysayer in this. He says that Wardy did not predict the presidential election, but that we were all overreacting and that in our overreaction, we were making Wardy a, a kind of false prophet. And so he looks at the connection between political predictions and prophetic reasoning and concludes that we should not say that Wardy predicted the accurately predicted the 2016 election because we should consider Wardy as a kind of false prophet. Now, in the next segment, I want to dig more deeply into some more of these predictions that Rorty makes, but this might be a good time to linger on this question of prophecy and prediction, because this becomes, in many ways, the the focal point of the second half of your book, The Dark Years, and you begin to look at the, the different ways in which particularly academic disciplines like science and the social sciences and philosophy make predictions, and you begin to give us a way, a tool of looking at different predictive practices with a critical eye. And if you could, for the sake of my listeners, walk us briefly through some of those moves that you make in the dark years, I think that would be helpful at this point in the conversation. Yeah, that was actually probably the most interesting chapter for me to write because it allowed me to really think about the differences between what's happening when scientists forecast the weather versus predict an eclipse versus religious prophets and, and what they predict. And then these historical predictions that we find within the social sciences, particularly within political science. And so what I found was that anytime social scientists, and here I include Wardy, anytime that they write or make their predictions with as much certainty as we have within the natural sciences, that their predictions become easier falsified. Anytime that someone in the social sciences keeps their predictions somewhat vague in general, that they seem to be more, more inspiring and more shocking. And so to the point in which Wardy's achieving our country provides that kind of vagueness and generality about what's going on in, in the 21st century, those predictions we can consider to be more accurate. When he gets more into the weeds in his essay, looking backwards from 2096, it seems like we have a lot more ground there to say that he, he got some things deeply wrong. I do agree with Andy Sill that we shouldn't call Wardy a prophet. And the reason that I, I say that is because Wardy is not tying his predictions to any kind of theological source or divine promise. And when we look at religious prophecy, we see things going in two directions. We see religious prophets relying on sacred text and the law for grounding their, their judgment and predictions. And then we see them looking towards the future in terms of what God promises as a way to get out of the current problems of, uh, that, that we're facing in terms of oppression and suffering. Wardy really does neither of those. He doesn't look backwards to some sacred text. And when he looks forward, his looking forward is a prediction of 30 years of dark years. And then from 2045 to 2095, he has a, a, a type of liberal utopianism that he defends. You could say that that's a, a kind of prophetic vision, but 
there, there really is no place for a divine promise. It's more of that we'll simply, there'll be enough citizens who read novels in the, in the 2040s, and these novels will, will reshape their imagination and will make them more sympathetic citizens. And that's what gets us out of the dark years and into this kind of Wardian liberal utopia for the second half of the 21st century. And so you can identify in these that there's different modes or mechanisms of what it means to make predictions. If you're making those predictions from a religious perspective versus a scientific perspective versus a political social science perspective. Let me make sure that I'm following correctly, and I'm going to make an analogy, and you tell me where I've got it right and where I've got it wrong. So a person reading religious texts might make a prediction about the future. Unto us a child will be born, unto us a son will be given. That, that kind of prediction of the future that we get, that then we, we can then see fulfilled in the Christian tradition in the coming of the person that we consider to be the Messiah, Jesus Christ. That's one type of prediction, but it's very vague, and it doesn't give exact times and dates. Then you said something like and the prediction of an eclipse, where using the tools of astrophysics, we can say with precision, at this particular time, the moon will begin to move across the, the face of the sun from our perspective. The eclipse will begin at this time. The eclipse will end at that time. And that will be a very precise prediction. Somewhere in between is what a weather report gives us. It tells us a probability, a chance, given factors that are known and can be followed. But that prediction, we all know to take with, for want of a better word, a grain of salt, that maybe it's going to rain, but also there's a chance that it won't rain. So when I'm hearing you describe what Rorty did, I'm hearing it more like the weather report and less like the exact prediction of the eclipse or the prophetic sort of proclamation that unto us a child will be born. I'm placing it more in that middle range. When I do that, am I following correctly or have I missed something? No, you are following that correctly. And I would say that the difference of reasoning between Wardy's predictions and a weather forecast is that uh, a weather forecast is making a prediction, even if it's going to become wrong, but making a prediction based on a seemingly infinite amount of data about weather patterns in the past. Whereas Wardy's predictions, as we said in the, in the first segment, in some ways almost seem to be so arbitrary that they're not based on any pattern. They're based on kind of his, um, his grumpy critique of his own profession. And so I would put Wardy's predictions even almost outside of that scale that you've created that he there's something different going on in the way that Wardy makes his predictions than we have with weather forecasting. It may be that they get about the same amount correct percentage-wise, but Wardy is not, he's not gathering lots of data about the patterns of American politics and American history. He's, it's more of a, he's very dissatisfied with academic life and with the left in this country. And he's almost predicting a kind of punishment against the left because the left has failed on so many different levels. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Jacob L. Goodson. He's Associate Professor of Philosophy at Southwestern College in Winfield, Kansas. And today we're discussing his recent book, The Dark Years, Philosophy, Politics, and the Problem of Predictions. We'll be back in a moment. Things Not Seen is brought to you in part by Liturgical Press. 
Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality. They've evolved to serve the changing needs of the Christian church, and they produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all leaders looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. If you're enjoying these conversations, please do visit our website at thingsnotseenradio.com, where you can find close to 10 years worth of these programs, all available for free and for your listening pleasure. Today, we're speaking to our guest, Jacob L. Goodson. We've had him on the show before to talk about his other books, but today we're talking about his recent book, The Dark Years, Philosophy, Politics, and the Problem of Predictions. Central to the book is a series of predictions that were made by the American philosopher Richard Rorty in the late 1990s that in some ways were shockingly accurate about the rise of Donald Trump and populism in the 2016 election. Well, we've been talking about that particular set of predictions, the the 2016 election, but it would be good now to turn to the actual source of predictions that are the title for your book, The Dark Years. And this is the period between 2014 and 2044, a 30-year period that Rorty predicts will be a sort of turning away from the achievements made by liberalism in the late 20th century. But tell us more about that and what those predictions say. Yeah, well, it's quite frightening to read these predictions and to and to think through which ones are coming true so one thing that he really focuses on in his essay looking backwards from 2996 is that we're going to see not only the rise of gun violence in this country but we're going to see white suburbanites take on the authority and ability themselves to start policing their neighborhoods. And I know that there's been so many events and occasions in 2020 alone where we have these images of white suburbanites, you know, bringing their guns out of their house. We had the horrible case in Georgia where the father and son actually chased down an African-American neighbor and shot, shot their neighbor. And these were all part of Wardy's predictions. Wardy thought that around the year 2020, that it would basically be a kind of suburban warfare against against people that they decided were less than human and and that weren't uh, legit Americans in, in one way or the other. So that prediction is is frightening, and to think that we're going to have that problem with us until 2044, according to Wardy, does indeed make these the dark years. However, another prediction, which doesn't seem to be coming true, is Wardy predicted that in the, in the 20s, in the 2020s, that we would have the second Great Depression and that it would be worse than the first Great Depression. Now, I will admit when the pandemic hit earlier this year, I started to think, well, maybe Wardy did call this, but it, it doesn't seem like we're headed towards the, the same type of Great Depression that that my grandparents experienced in, in their childhood. But that, that, could, that could still prove to be, to be accurate. He still has 10 years to go to, to call that one. 
and the other sets of predictions involve you know misogyny and sexism i mean wardy thinks that from now until 2044 we're going to completely revert back to the way things were for women prior to the 1960s and 70s now what's fascinating to me in these sets of predictions is they they're not simply empty and coming from nowhere, as you make very clear in your book, The Dark Years, but they are tied to what we've been saying earlier in the conversation. The academic left, the universities, turned their back on questions of the poor and instead focused on questions of identity politics. But those identity politics in many ways were superficial to the structural problems that would have brought them inevitably back to the economic issues that they were so loath to, to deal with because of McCarthyism. And so because it was built on more surface than structure, I read your book as saying that Rorty's predicting that what will need to happen is a real return to solidarity with the poor and a real return to the kind of patient political work of of building the kind of allegiances and alliances and unions in many ways. And I'm using that both in the big U and the little U uh, manner, unions of, of affinity that will actually be able to create substantive political change. Now, as I bring that reading of your book forward, does, have I got it right or have I missed something in your analysis that you could correct? I think you mostly have it right. I think you're more charitable to Wardy than, than I am in the book. I mean, what you say is correct. What Wardy thinks will happen is something that is sort of less radical and revolutionary in the way that you put it. Basically, Wardy thinks that in the, two, in the 2040s that... American citizens, a majority of us, will return to novels and we'll start reading more novels than we have been. And these novels will reform or reframe our imagination. And that instead of our shame being turned into fear, which is what's happening right now, according to Wardy, the more that we read novels, the more that our shame will be turned into sympathy. And so the way that you put it is exactly right. But Wardy's prediction for how it comes about is, I think, less interesting and less uh, revolutionary than the way that you put it. Wardy thinks that we're just going to become better readers in the 2040s. And by being better readers, we will, as I put it in the book, we will magically transform into a more sympathetic country that then finds solidarity with strangers. Uh, Wardy doesn't focus on the poor. He focuses on that word strangers of who we will find solidarity with. So uh, for Wardy, the best we can hope for and, and the way that life will be structured after 2045 is that a majority of Americans will, will be in solidarity with strangers, by which he means will turn strangers into neighbors. Now, this is fascinating to me because I see you making this move in the book, The Dark Years, but I'd, I'd love for my listeners for you to line this out. How is it that Rorty's saying that a return to better reading will simply magically create this kind of solidarity? How is that not simply reinscribing the problem of the academic left that he that he was bringing his critiques about in philosophy and the mirror of nature? Yeah, that's an excellent question. I mean, I think in his mind that the academic left will be at the forefront of this transformation and that the left will be more of what he calls the reformist left, which is the left that he defends against the academic left, which he critiques. And so in the 2040s, there'll be professors and faculty members 
who in some ways lead the charge of using literature to, to transform our imaginations as a country. And when they do that, they are not being the problematic academic left. They are being the hopeful reformist left. And this is the left that Wardy, this is how he thought of his own career. And it's what he, it's what he thought would solve the problems of America in the late 20th century. If the academy was more reformist left than academic left, or he also calls them cultural left. And so, yeah, in the 2040s, for Rorty, professors will finally make this turn that he's been calling for, will become what he considers the reformist left, and will be leading the charge for how to reshape our imaginations through literature. And the societal impact of that will be that we see strangers as neighbors. And that's, that's really Rorty's liberal utopian vision in a nutshell. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Jacob L. Goodson. He's been on the program before to discuss his other books. In fact, most recently, he was on with his co-author, Brad Elliott Stone, to talk about their book, Introducing Prophetic Pragmatism. But today we're talking about his recent book, The Dark Years, Philosophy, Politics, and the Problem of Predictions. Well, we've been talking for the majority of our conversation about the academic left, and we've been sort of lining out what that meant for Richard Rorty and what that meant for the rise of a particular kind of anti-political, anti-economically focused philosophy called analytic philosophy. But you make a move towards the end of your book, The Dark Years, that I found fascinating because you are wanting to bring in not just Rorty's critique of the academic left, but you're also wanting to bring in a critique of the the evangelical American right. And I'd love to think with you for the sake of my listeners, how do you make that move and why do you make that move? Yeah, thank you for such a great question. It seemed to me that the conclusions that I had drawn for the reasons of Wardy's predictions, the ones that became accurate and true, it wasn't the full truth to simply blame the cultural left or the academy. I certainly do agree with with Wardy and with historians like John McCumber that the Academy really did drop the ball when it comes to thinking about the working poor and the unemployed. So I do agree with that wholeheartedly, but it's not the full truth. And I decided that if I wanted to really publish a book on Wardy's predictions, that I, I needed to be honest about other factors at play going on in American politics right now. And really, two of my primary identities in life is, is being an academic, but also being raised as an evangelical Christian. I do not consider myself that anymore, but it, it certainly shapes the way that I think of the world. And, and in terms of this book, um, my evangelical background very much shapes what I expect of politics and politicians. For instance, I expect I was raised to, to have no doubts that the character of the president is what matters most about the presidency. and so as a way to, for me, tell the whole truth or the full truth about our current political moment, I really had to dig into, even though it was going to possibly be painful because of my childhood, but dig into the ways in which the religious right and American evangelical Christianity really did make a, a large shift in some ways in terms of how they defended and why they defended Donald Trump in 2016 and continued to defend him today. Luckily, I, I found someone, I found a scholar, a trusted scholar who 
already made some of these connections. Stanley Hauerwas published Mining the Web with the same publisher as The Dark Years a year prior to The Dark Years. And so I was able to bolster my judgment about the problems of American evangelical Christianity with some of Hauerwas's judgments. And I, uh, in some cases, I strengthened Hauerwas's judgments on evangelicalism. And in other ways, I tried to nuance what precisely he was saying. And so that eased some of the pain, David, um, having another trusted scholar see the things that I was seeing, that made it a bit easier to write that chapter. But it certainly was the hardest chapter to write in terms of my own, of my own experience. In some ways, this book was just an emotional nightmare because in writing the particular chapter you're referring to, I was having to think about the wounds of my own past. And then in writing the predictions about the next 30 years, I was having to think about the potential wounds of my, that my daughters will experience. And so that dynamic between my own past as an evangelical Christian and the future of my children going through the dark years and what, what, what should be the best years of their lives really made this book such a, a fascinating but emotionally strenuous work. Well, and that chapter on the failures of evangelicalism or the the culpability of American evangelicalism to our present moment, it also forms a bridge in many ways to an earlier book that you wrote called Strength of Mind, Courage, Hope, Freedom, Knowledge. And in fact, you've said explicitly that you see this current book, The Dark Years, as a kind of sequel to Strength of Mind. But for, for my listeners, maybe make those bridges explicit. How is this continuing the project that you began in Strength of Mind? Yeah, I, I do think this book is a sequel. So in Strength of Mind, I argue that part of the scholarly task is no matter how bad things get politically or socially, that professors have a intellectual obligation to promote hope as a virtue and to be hopeful in their teaching and scholarship. I kept that as a general claim for the most part. I did reference Rorty's predictions in Strength of Mind but only because I had a, a student write on Rorty's predictions and claim that my class led her to hopelessness. And so it was a way to critique myself <laughs> to bring up Rorty's predictions and how it impacted this particular student. And so this book takes that general claim that scholars have an obligation to be hopeful no matter the political or social context of what we find ourselves in. It takes that general claim and particularizes it to this moment and to say that I really wanted to make two connections. That first, what we really need right now is we need to be active in trying to find reasonable forms of hope, no matter which side of the political aisle you find yourselves on. And in some ways, the right may say that they have they, they finally have what they want, but I don't find them hopeful because they're, they're pretty nihilistic in what they think we can achieve as a country and uh, as a people. And then the left has developed all these real apocalyptic arguments and rhetoric about where we're heading as a country that just the, the left has become very hopeless, I think, in the last four years. And so this book allowed me to say that Right now, we have, a, uh, we have a particular obligation, not this just general one, but a particular obligation to be hopeful in our teaching and in our scholarship, and that we have to model hopefulness for our students who are going to be the future of the citizenry and the future of politics in this country. 
But there's a second reason as well. Wardy actually calls himself the philosopher of hope. And so I, I, the reason that I wrote this particular book initially was because I found it so ironic that someone who had called themselves a philosopher of hope would predict such darkness for 30 years. And my conclusion and where I really separate myself from Wardy is that if you call yourself a philosopher of hope, you have a particular obligation to tell us how to steer clear of darkness, not how to march into it. And I think the problem of Wardy's predictions at the end of the day is that he, he basically just allows us to walk into this darkness and he doesn't give us any hope until 2045 and onward. But we have to have hope. We have to be hopeful uh, right now in 2020. We cannot wait for 2045. I would even argue we cannot wait for uh, who's going to be president. We have an obligation. And, and here the obligation, I think, is shared by citizens who are educated and who consider themselves to be intellectual and well-read. Right? We have an obligation to, to be hopeful no matter how grim the political and social scene gets in this country. So those are the connections that the, the dark years provided me with a, with a particular context for reiterating the general obligation of what it means to be hopeful in, in a time of, of darkness and struggle. Well, and that leads me then to ask Jacob Goodson in 2020, what is the shape of the hope that you're calling us to? What is the shape and particularity of your hope right now? Yeah, I think we need a what I call in the book a melancholic hope. We could we could also call it a a kind of truthful hope. I do think that we have to name the sin of racism in this country as a sin that still has a deep hold on us and that we need to be melancholic about that fact. And and here I'm using melancholic in the Fordian sense of that we need to allow ourselves a type of despair about the intense amount of racism, not only in our past, but in our present. It's melancholic hope, right? Melancholic is the adjective. Hope is the object. And so for me, it's not just about despairing about the sin of racism and how it has such a hold on us. Not to mention that we are recording this the same week that President Trump refused to condemn white supremacy when given the chance to explicitly do so. Even with that happening this week, I think that we can be hopeful about the future of our country and what James Baldwin called achieving our country once we realize that racism provides a type of hell for all of us. The difference between being black and white in this country, according to Baldwin, is that blacks know we're in hell and, and whites refuse that knowledge. And I think that when you use that religious metaphor, as, as Baldwin does, that it does suggest a type of transcendent hope. And here, transcendent by transcendent, I mean getting us out of the hell that we've created for ourselves. I do draw on the writings of Baldwin um, and of Wardy and of Cornell West to say that we have to use our imagination right now to think about what life looks like beyond racism in this country and to really create rules for ourselves where we where we live in ways that we we no longer treat people that are different color than us as a mere means but we we learn to treat them as ends in themselves for me the hope in terms of the sin of racism is that 
were able to imagine life together beyond the politics of racism and the utter nihilism of white supremacy. Well, Jacob Goodson, I studied Richard Rorty one semester in college as a philosophy major, and I formed some opinions about him and some dismissals of him. One of the things that I appreciate so much every time that I have you on the show is that reading your work and talking to you drives me to reassess my earlier opinions and deepens my understanding and makes connections that I hadn't seen before. I so value and I'm so grateful for the work that you're doing. Please keep writing books and please keep coming back onto my show. It's always a pleasure to have you as a guest. Thank you for being here with us today. Thank you so much, David. It's always an honor to be on your show. We've been speaking today with Jacob L. Goodson. He's Associate Professor of Philosophy at Southwestern College in Winfield, Kansas. We've had him on the show before, most recently with his co-author, Brad Elliott Stone, to discuss their book, The Promise of Prophetic Pragmatism. Today, we've been talking about his recent book, The Dark Years, Philosophy, Politics, and the Problem of Predictions. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. Today's show was recorded at the William Adams Studios in beautiful Hyde Park here on the south side of Chicago, Illinois. Our studios have a home courtesy of the Zygon Center for Religion and Science, part of the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. Neither Zygon nor LSTC are responsible for the content of this program. Our theme music is composed by Gene Keeja. Our show is made possible in part by the generosity of supporters on Patreon. You can find out how to help us create great programs by going to patreon.com slash notseenradio. You can follow us on Twitter at notseenradio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and find out more about our guests. That's facebook.com slash thingsnotseenradio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and find out more about our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us. I wish I would have had this conversation before the book came out because you provided some clarity oh. that I, I would have used for either introducing or concluding chapters. So thank you for that. Well, thank you. I I, I don't think the book suffered for not having talked to me beforehand. This is a powerhouse. I, I, I love the way that you write, but especially in this book, you you gave me just a lot. I mean, then this happened with promise of prophetic pragmatism too. You, you just, you gave me so much to think about that I'm going to use in my own scholarship. I'm just very, very grateful for the work that you're doing. Well, thank you, David. I yeah. really appreciate that. Yeah.